Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Come on into the house today. Find a seat. Say hello to somebody as you do. We're going to get started here in just a second. Happy Sunday, everybody. So glad to be here at church together. So glad that we all found time to be here this morning. How many of you are glad to be at church today? Amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about a story in the Bible. We're going to be talking about Esther. Um, we're going to be going through the book of Esther um, somewhat briefly, but I, I want to recap a little bit um, about this story and give you some context. And so we're going to jump right in this morning, starting in, uh, in the book of Esther, chapter 4 and verse 13. Esther 4 and verse 13. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Um, but this morning we're talking about Esther. We're talking about faithfulness and divine reversals. Everyone say divine reversals. Divine. Esther 4 and verse 13 says in the New King James, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all of the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all of the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's say that together as well. If I perish, I perish. And so this morning as we get started, um, Esther, the book of Esther in this story is one of the most interesting and intriguing stories in all of the Bible and here in our scripture text in chapter 4, we begin at the decisive climax of one of the most interesting stories that you will read in your Bible. The book of Esther begins 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Jews and serves as a pivotal history of the Jewish people while also being illustrated as an epic narrative unlike many other books in the Bible. I've heard some compare it to... Um, a biblical soap opera, if you will. Um, and I do think that it would be a very interesting um, screenplay. However, one of the key features of the book of Esther is that God is never directly mentioned by name in the entire book. God is never named directly in the entire book, not even one time. However, his work and his orchestration in the book and in the events, is not absent from its story. And much the same can be said in our lives today, that even when we feel like God is absent from the narrative of our life, his work and his orchestration of things and events in our life is not absent. Amen? Amen. And so today in discussing the story of Esther, we're going to do a couple of things. We will understand what it means to trust God in the midst of adversity, and how our faith and willingness to act according to his timing will lead to divine 
reversals. Chapter 1 of Esther depicts a Persian king known as Xerxes, as a king who lavished in his own wealth and flaunted his belongings and his treasures to his subjects through hosting feasts and parties. King Xerxes was a party animal, if you will. And of the things that he flaunted at these parties was his wife, Queen Vashti. And one day while hosting a feast, the king summoned his wife to appear before his guests to display her immense beauty to all in the room. And after refusing to appear, the king and his council thought it best to dethrone and banish Queen Vashti for her disobedience in order to maintain that other women did not follow in her footsteps and defy their husbands. And so moving into chapter 2, the king appoints his servants to gather the most beautiful young women throughout the kingdom and choose one that would be most pleasant and pleasing to to the king and appoint her as his queen in place of his banished ex-wife. And so Esther, we can read in our story, was one of the young women women who had been gathered at the citadel in the kingdom of Persia under the custody of Haggai, which was the custodian of women. In other words, the king held a beauty pageant to see who was the most beautiful and the most gracious and fair woman to become his queen. And Esther, we understand, was an orphan who had lost her parents and was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And Esther and Mordecai, they were Jewish, and they came from the Benjamites who were exiled from Babylon in years past. And while Jews were allowed in Persia, they were allowed to be there. They weren't being persecuted necessarily like they were in Babylon, but it wasn't always the most favorable background to be from especially for a potential queen. And so Mordecai instructs Esther to hide who she was, to hide the fact that she was a Jew. And so Esther begins to gain favor according to what uh, chapter 2 and verse 15 says, she gains favor in the sight of all who saw her and obtained the king's grace and favor and was appointed his queen. And the story goes on that shortly after becoming queen, Mordecai overhears a plot of two of the king's eunuchs who were sitting at the gate that were plotting to kill him. And Mordecai rushes to Esther, his cousin whom he raised, and he informs her of the plot to kill the king, her new husband. And so Esther goes to the king and tells him of this plot, which resulted in the arrest of the two eunuchs. And Esther tells the king about the man who spoiled this plot, who saved his life, who who told what would happen, and she said that his name was Mordecai, and Mordecai's name was written in the chronicles of the king in a book. And after this happens later in chapter 3, the story continues, and we see that the king appoints a man named Haman, who was an Agagite, to be second in command over all the kingdom. And upon Haman's recent promotion to second in command in the kingdom, all of the king's servants bowed and paid homage to Haman because of the king's request. The king said, bow down to this man named Haman. He is my right-hand man. He is second 
in command. And so all of the servants began to bow to Haman, except for one, except for Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. And so the king's servant questions Mordecai in chapter 3, verse 3, saying, why do you transgress the king's command? Why are you not bowing down to Haman? And Mordecai's response as to why he wouldn't bow was simply because he was a Jew. And we can understand the contention here and the reasoning why Mordecai chose not to bow before Haman by just looking at his lineage and his past. You see, Haman was in the direct line of the Amalekite king Agag, who warred against King Saul and the nation of Israel. More specifically, we can read that the Amalekites slaughtered, quote, the famished and weary and cut down all stragglers in the nation of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 25 and 17, amidst their exodus from Egypt. And so Mordecai, being a Jew, refuses to bow down to this man named Haman. Mordecai's refusal to bow down to someone who was represented as an enemy of God is what he chose to do. He would not bow before his enemy. And so upon hearing Mordecai's unwillingness to bow, the story goes on. Not only did Haman set out to have Mordecai killed, that we we learn, but, but Haman decides that because of this one man's act of disobedience, I will kill him and I will kill every Jew in this kingdom. And so Haman was able to convince the king to give him authority to kill all of the Jews by stroking the king's ego. He tells the king that the Jews' laws and customs are different from all other peoples in the kingdom of Persia and that the Jews don't keep your laws, king. They don't keep your laws and therefore it's not fitting that they remain in this kingdom. And so the Bible says that, that, that King Xerxes put his ring on Haman's finger, which identified and suggests that you have full authority to do what you want to do. And so Haman has this plot, and he sends out a decree among the kingdom that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews in the kingdom and the king's provinces were to be killed, were to be annihilated, both young and old, little children and women as well as having all their possessions plundered and taken from them. And so this terrible evil decree goes out into the kingdom to have all of the Jews killed. And we can go to Esther chapter 4 in verse 1. After hearing this decree, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so in verse 1, we read that Mordecai puts on this garment, this sackcloth, And he puts on ashes, which were a sign of mourning and grief during that time. And he goes into the midst of the city, and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate with the sackcloth. 
You see, he had put on and he had represented, visually represented his sign of mourning. But he was not allowed within the gates of the king. Matthew Henry's commentary says about this scripture that none must come near the king in a mourning dress because he was not willing to hear the complaints of such. Let me pause here and say that I serve a king who was willing to hear such. I serve a king who was willing to hear my mourning and my distress. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that, are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and, and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That is the king that I serve. But Mordecai wasn't allowed to enter the king's gate because mourning and distress was not to be heard by the king. And so Mordecai and Esther began talking about the situation that they found themselves in through exchanging letters, and, and they understand that they're facing certain defeat for themselves and for their people. And so Mordecai sends a letter to Esther, who was in the palace, and instructed her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people, the Jews. Now keep in mind, the king still doesn't know that Esther is a Jew. However, the problem with this plan, we understand, is that approaching the king without a royal request is an act that's punishable by death. And Esther, we can see, has not been summoned by the king in over 30 days, so she knows that she can't do that. She can't go to the king and beg and plead as she was instructed in that way. And so Mordecai's response is where our opening text picks up in Esther 4 and verse 13. And I'll read it again. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, you can stay silent and God may use somebody else to deliver the Jews, but you and your house will perish. Maybe God has placed you in this situation that seems unfortunate for such a time as this because he wants to use your situation for his good. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, and she said, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Esther had faithfulness in such a time as this. God is calling us through observing this story to have faithfulness in such a time as this. Now, earlier I mentioned that God is not directly identified or named anywhere in the book of Esther. You see, the book of Esther takes place just before the Jews were to enter the 400 silent years where God did not communicate to them through his prophet. And in this book, God is wanting his people to know that just because he's not speaking doesn't mean he's not active. Just because they can't hear him doesn't mean that he is not moving in their lives. While he isn't speaking, he's still moving. 
And so this prepares the Jews to look at how God moves rather than directly relying upon the prophet for his spoken word, which they would not have for the next 400 years. And so God is preparing them unknowingly. They are going through this trial, forcing to be have their, have their eyes set on how God moves rather than just listening to what somebody tells them God is saying. And so it is in our lives, often we feel that we are hearing from God. Often we feel that he is absent from this chapter in our lives, but God is wanting us to see and understand that he is still moving and working in our midst. And although we may not see it right now, just as he did with Esther, God has placed you in the kingdom for such a time as this. Despite your trials, despite your mourning, despite your defeat, despite your recent state of wearing sackcloth and ashes, God is about to use your circumstances and your position in your life for his good. Everyone say his good. good. Having faithfulness for such a time as this is not just being willing to serve the kingdom when things are going well. Having faithfulness for such a time as this, as Esther did, is not just having faith in God when times are good. But serving the kingdom when you feel as though you are on the brink of defeat is true faithfulness. When you feel like the world is out against you and the enemy is on your heels and you have no other place to turn to, that is when your true faith is tested. And when you feel as though that you can't escape the defeat of the enemy because of your lineage and because of your past, Just as Mordecai and the Jews, when the enemy is on your heels and trying to force you out of the kingdom because of who you are, you have to keep the faith and have the mentality of Esther that says, I will do what I have to do, even if I perish. Even if it's the last thing I do, I will have faith until the end. Even if I lose everything that I have, my position, my title, my status, my belongings, and even my life. I will do what I have to do. In the words of Esther, even if I perish. Jesus said, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. But let's look for a moment and notice that Esther's faithfulness was not met without preparation. Verse 16 says that she had all the Jews who were in the city gathered to fast for her. For what she was about to do, she asked people to fast with her, and she did the same thing for three days and for three nights. You see, it's one thing to be faithful in your words, but it's another to be faithful with your actions and with your preparation. We ought to spend time being faithful in our actions to God, just as Esther. When you're faced with a decision in your life, ask somebody to pray and fast with you. And you do the same. 
Gather up your friends and your family and your church family and pray about what God is asking you to do. Fast for what God is asking you to do in your life. <clears throat> and so Esther did not approach the decision to go before the king alone or with haste. She didn't do it by herself and she didn't do it hastily or rashly. When God is pushing you to do something in the, for the kingdom that you are uncertain about, talk to your pastor about it. Talk to your leader about it. Unite with somebody else in prayer and fasting. Go before the Lord with preparation and consecration. Amen? Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, as we enter chapter 5, the book of Esther, we see the reversal of Haman's evil plan. And so Esther hosts the king and hosts Haman at a banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them. And so the three, three of them gather together and enjoy the spoils of a feast and plenty of wine at this banquet. And as Esther begins to make her petition in verse 7 of chapter 5, she says, my petition and request is this. And then she pauses for a moment. And instead of making her plea, she requests that another banquet happen tomorrow. For whatever reason, she decided to pause right there and said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to have a banquet tomorrow. And so Haman then leaves the banquet, and on his way home, he runs into Mordecai on the street. And Haman, already being drunk from this banquet, becomes infuriated at the sight of Mordecai. And he orders his men to build gallows outside of his house that are 50 cubits high, which were made to impale its victims to death. <clears throat> and so the gallows are made that night outside of Haman's residence. And while the gallows are being built and the night approaches, we read in chapter 6 that the king is having trouble sleeping. You guys ever had trouble sleeping? <coughs> so the king is having trouble sleeping, and he orders his servant to come in and read him a book. Now, When's the last time you as an adult had somebody come in and read a book to you to help you fall asleep? <clears throat> no hands? I didn't think so. Maybe some of you parents do that, but I don't know when the last time a book was read to me, let alone the King's Chronicles, which is what we see happens here in this story as the servant comes out and he brings the King's Chronicles to him, which in my opinion is somewhat egotistical. <laughs> read to me the things that have happened to me so that I may fall asleep to my own pride. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> do you have Chronicles, Pastor Jordan? Okay, <clears throat> we'll work on that for you. And so the servant begins reading the king's Chronicles and makes mention of the time that Mordecai saved his life from a plot to be killed. And he remembers, and the king questions and asks, what honor was given to this man who saved my life? What honor was given to him for his heroic acts? Only to find out that nothing had been done. There was no honor ever given to Mordecai. And so the king, at that moment, is, is thinking, well, we gotta, we gotta do something for this man. He saved my life, nothing's been done. We gotta honor him somehow. And at that moment, Haman enters the king's court 
with the motive to have Mordecai killed at the gallows. But before Haman could say anything to the king, he runs in furious, saying, I'm going to have Mordecai killed tonight. Before he can make his request to the king to have Mordecai killed, the king interrupts and asks this question in Esther 6.6. It says, so Haman came in and the king asks him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? What shall be done to the man for whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So he, Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. And boy, he doesn't, he doesn't hold anything back with what he thinks he deserves. And Haman answered the king and says, for the man whom the king delights to honor, this is where, this is my favorite part. Let a royal robe be brought for which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Let his robe and his horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights in honor. Get him the best coat, the best horse, have the most noble prince put it on him. And get this, and then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman thought that he was worthy and deserving of being paraded around the town on horseback because of how honorable he was. And he didn't hold anything back with his description of what he thinks he deserves as the king's most honored man. But only to find out that this honor was not for him, but for Mordecai, the one that he was trying to kill. Esther 6.10, it continues and says, Then the king said to Haman, he's, Okay, I hear everything. That sounds awesome. Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And so Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman is forced to parade his enemy around the city, giving him the utmost honor and praise. Now imagine the anger that Haman must have felt. The person that he was on a path to kill, the person that he was on the path to destroy and convince the king to let him kill. <coughs> he is now parading around the streets, proclaiming with his own voice the honor of this man. Imagine his anger. You see, the enemy gets mad when the terms are reversed. The enemy doesn't like it when the plans don't go his way. Mordecai's faithfulness to the king in, times of, in, in the times past became the thing that saved his life. His faithfulness to the king saved his life. And while Haman was plotting his death, God had other plans. You see, God will take what was meant for your death, your demise, your downfall, your destruction, and intervene with a divine reversal. The enemy doesn't like when things don't go his way, but if you stay faithful to the king, 
At some point, what you have been faithful to in your life will come back to be the thing that saves you and God will flip it for your good. God will give you a divine reversal when things seem lost. When things seem hopeless, God will take it and turn it for his good. Amen. And so what happens next after Mordecai's parade is finished, Haman returns to the banquet with the king and with Esther. And once again, the king asks Esther, he says, what is your petition? Why have you called us here? What, what do you want? And in the, the previous banquet, the king had already told her, you can have whatever you want. You can have, if you want half the kingdom, it's yours. He literally told her that. And so in verse 3 of chapter 7, she begins to tell the king about who she really is, that she is a Jew, and that her people, along with herself and Mordecai, are going to be killed and eradicated from the kingdom. And the king furiously responds and asks, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther points to Haman, who is sitting right next to him, and says, Haman is the enemy who seeks to kill me and my people. And in a rage, the king storms out of the room into the palace garden to process what he had just heard. His right-hand man seeking to kill his wife, his queen. And meanwhile, Haman, in a state of fear and terror, begins to stand over Esther, who is seated in a chair, and beg and plead for his life. But as the king re-enters the room, all he saw was Haman standing over his wife. And who, with a king who is probably slightly drunk already, erratic and prideful, and just probably not a very stable person, sees this man who is, he knows now is trying to kill his wife standing over her. He doesn't know that he's begging for his life. But he sees him and he says, will you assault the queen while I am in the house? Will you assault the queen while I am right here standing watching? And as he says that, immediately the eunuchs covered Haman's face, dragged him out of the king's chamber and took him to the gallows for which Haman had built for Mordecai to be killed. And Haman hung on the very thing that he built for Mordecai's death. What the enemy meant for evil, God means for good. When you are faithful to God for such a time as this, he will perform a divine reversal in your life and remove the enemy that you think is about to destroy you. And he will use what the enemy has planned for you to be the thing that the enemy is defeated with. You see, those gallows weren't meant for Haman. Those gallows were meant for Mordecai. But God reversed the situation. When God performs a divine reversal, what you thought was a curse becomes a blessing. What you thought would kill you becomes the thing that God will use for his glory. <coughs> you must also understand that divine re reversals don't happen on your time. Divine reversals don't happen on your time. God may put you in a bad situation that gives you a supernatural deliverance. God may allow you to be in a kingdom 
where you feel like you are about to be defeated only so that he can then turn it for his good. And so the story goes on to tell us that Esther convinces the king to send out another decree to all the Jews, letting them know about the attack that was prepared for them. And the Jews were able to defend themselves and kill their enemies with complete victory. In our lives, when the enemy raises up circumstances against us, when he raises up people against us, God will perform a divine reversal. Isaiah 59 and 9 says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And so God has put you in your place in life for such a time as this. And he is requesting of us to be faithful to him. And when we do that, and we operate on God's timing, he will perform a miracle. <coughs> One last thing as I begin to close. Let's all, we can go ahead and stand this morning. In Esther 4 and verse 3, the Jews, we can look back and see the Jews were weeping and mourning because of the decree set forth by Haman for their death. We can see that Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes and was mourning. But we also see four chapters later in Esther 8 and verse 16, it says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. You see, yesterday you were mourning, but today you've got joy. Why? Because when I have faith, even in the times where I don't hear God, or when things aren't going my way, I have to understand that he's moving and he's working all things together for my good. Amen. Yesterday I was defeated, but today I have victory. God wants to perform a divine reversal in your life. God wants to perform an emotional reversal in your life. He wants to reverse the emotion of mourning and sorrow and weeping for joy and gladness. He wants to reverse the emotion of defeat to victory. And of course, Jesus and his resurrection was the ultimate reversal, the ultimate divine reversal that says he has been defeated. But we can see that he conquers death, hell, and the grave and reverses the script. As I close, I want to just remind you of two songs. One we sing here at the church very often. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. Another song I heard this week, it's a newer song. It's called Even If by Anthony Evans. And the lyrics really got to me this week as I was reading the story of Esther. And I was finding myself in the place of Mordecai where I've covered myself with sackcloth and ashes and have been mourning throughout my life for things that I thought were going to be defeating me. The lyrics of the song say, even if the doctor tells me there's no medication to take away the pain that I begged you to, I'll still praise you. Even if I have to wait for you to mend the heartbreak and believe that every tear that falls you use, I'll still praise you. Even if you choose to never take away the struggle, 
Your grace will be enough to pull me through. I'll still praise you. And even if the one who calls causes my heart to, to be, excuse me, even if the one who calls my heart is never sorry, and even if I never hear the words I'm longing to, I will still praise you. Even if it feels like there's an army turned against me, I'll still praise you. Even if I never see the healing this side of heaven, I will still praise you. God is calling us to be faithful for such a time as this. Can we lift our hands this morning? Lord, I worship you today. I thank you for the privilege and the honor to be called a child of the King. Lord, I, I, I consider it a privilege and an honor, Lord, to be standing here right now, despite of the life circumstances that have come my way, despite of the things that I go through, Lord, you have been gracious and you have been good to me. Lord, I thank you for always working in my midst, even whenever I don't recognize it, even whenever I feel like you are absent from this chapter of my life and I can't hear your voice, God, I thank you for always moving and always working in my midst, God. Lord, I pray that this message of Esther and this example of faithfulness would, would challenge us this morning and would convict our hearts, Lord, to be faithful to the end. As Esther said, even if I perish, I perish because you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of my faithfulness this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer this morning. Jesus.